Hey, Scott Walker here. You're back on You Can't Recall Courage, our weekly podcast. Thanks for joining us today. You know, in the past week, uh, the U.S. Senate, at the end of last week, passed a budget deal, uh, a bipartisan budget deal. And in the past, sometimes people have asked me if I like bipartisanship, but I said it all depends. You know, after 9-11, when United We Stand was out there and we came together as a country, we tried to fight terrorism, certainly those are good signs of bipartisanship. But, but sometimes bipartisanship is actually not a very good thing, and I think this is a prime example. So this is a two-year budget deal that raises spending by $320 billion. That's B, billion dollars. It suspends the debt ceiling for really an unprecedented two years, includes no real spending offsets, and it really just exacerbates the nation's fiscal crisis. So kudos to all the members of the United States Senate and the U.S. House of Representatives, including the five Republicans from my home state of Wisconsin, uh, Jim Sensenbrenner, Brian Stile, Glenn Grothman, Sean Duffy, and Mike Gallagher, who used to work for me, as well as our own U.S. Senator in Wisconsin, the Republican, that is, Ron Johnson. Uh, each of the five House members and our U.S. Senator Ron Johnson voted against this unbelievable budget deal. Uh, like I said, not just the fact that it continues to bloat the federal government, but it suspends the debt ceiling for two years. That's really remarkable. Now, put that in context, I've talked about this before, but when I, when I was first born, back in November 2nd, 1967, the national debt was just over $300 million. In fact, my share was $1,640. You fast forward to 1981 when Ronald Reagan, who I loved, is, was our 40th president. That year, he talked about it during the presidential campaign. He talked about it again repeatedly as president, the need for a balanced budget amendment. But in 1981, part of the reason he pointed to that was that the federal debt in 1981 uh, had jumped from just a few hundred million dollars to over the $1 trillion mark. Look ahead to 2008 when Barack Obama was first elected president. The nation's debt was up to $10 trillion. Eight years later, it nearly doubled to $19.5 trillion. And now, today in 2019, the U.S. debt is over $22 trillion. And what do our members of Congress do? They, they pass a budget deal that suspends the debt ceiling for two years and raises spending by some $320 billion. A lot of talks been given, and a lot of tension, I should say, has been given. A lot of talk about the issue of student loan debt. And I could do a whole separate podcast on this because, uh, to me, if you look at the numbers, student loan uh, debt is largely attributable to the fact that uh, tuition, tuition across the country, public and private institutions alike, tuition on average since 1978 has gone up more than 1,000%. That's more than four times the rate of inflation. I think that's largely attributable to the fact that during that same time frame, the federal government continues to put more money in student loan debt assistance. I said, well, what's wrong with that? Well, part of it is it's driving the debt up. And, and no matter how much assistance you get from the federal government, if you've still got to repay that, uh, that only encouraged colleges and universities to jack up their tuition because they knew the federal government was going to give their students more money to spend on that. So student loan debt, a whole separate topic, but an important issue. If you look at today in America, a child born in this great country anywhere in the United States would inherit more than $67,000 worth of our nation's national debt, the U.S. debt, $67,000 per person. That's more than double what the typical student loan debt is for graduate uh, here in the United States. Unbelievable problem. 
It's one of those where it's only getting worse. The only way to resolve it, I believe, on a long-term basis is to pass a balanced budget amendment. Historically, all the other amendments to the U.S. Constitution have been done by one way. That's spelled out in the Constitution. Two-thirds vote of the Congress, and then it's sent to the states where three-quarters, that's today, would be 38 out of the 50 states have to vote to ratify. There's one other way, however, that was pointed out in the Constitution that's not something new. It's been there all along, but it's new to the process in the sense that this would be the first time it's been tried before, and that's passing a balanced budget amendment by going through the states, so the states exclusively. You see, the Constitution says very clearly that two-thirds of the states, if they vote uh, to uh, support an application, which would be passing a resolution, Wisconsin was the 28th state to do this a few years back, if they ask for a balanced budget amendment resolution, or any other resolution for that matter, but in this case, balanced budget amendment, uh, two-thirds of the states could vote, and if they were successful in that, that means 34 of the 50 states voting, uh, they could, under Article 5 of the U.S. Constitution, bring about a convention, a convention under Article 5. In this case, the convention would be solely limited to the issue brought by the 34 states, which would be passing a balanced budget amendment language be agreed upon there, and then it would be sent to each of the 50 states in this great country to, to take up as a vote. If 38 of the 50 states, three-quarters, voted to ratify, it would indeed become the latest uh, amendment to the United States Constitution. I think it was important they gave us this idea because what we've seen is in the past, the federal government, just the Congress in particular, just can't get their act together. There, there have been times when they attempted to do so, uh, for example, Grad Rodman Hollings decades ago, even in the past decade, sequestration. There have been all these attempts, but, but eventually a future Congress messes it up, as we just saw with this latest budget deal, and they disregard all those spending limits. They disregard the attempts to balance the budget. And so the only way to do it is to do what every other state but one, my state and, and uh, 48 other states, have a requirement for a balanced budget in their constitution. Uh, certainly in our own lives as families, as small business owners, as senior citizens and others, uh, we all have to live with a balanced budget. All the other governments do other than the federal government. We can't print money. We've got to balance the budget. Some are better at doing it than others. But the federal government's the only one who can just completely disregard this and, and rack up more debt. And it's a debt that's, you know, just around the corner. We're, we're talking about major ramifications, not 20, 30, 40 years from now. Uh, some people talk about this being generational theft. It is, but good chunks of this will start to blow up in 2025. That's less than five and a half years from now. So this is a real deal out there. We've got to deal with it. We've got to pass a balanced budget amendment. We only need six more states, and they're not radical states out there. They're states like South Carolina, Idaho, Kentucky, Montana, Minnesota, and Virginia. Those states are very realistic concerning the makeup of the state legislative bodies in each of those respective states. So certainly I hope along the way you'll help us and join the cause, particularly if you live in any of those states, employ people in those states, have friends or family in those states. Again, it's South Carolina, uh, Kentucky, Idaho, Montana, Minnesota, and Virginia. Help us out along the way. Speaking of economic things, uh, fiscal things, I should say, the economy continues to grow. We've, we've seen more than 6.3 million new jobs created since the 2016 election for president. Along the way, wages up. In fact, wages are overwhelmingly up, much farther, higher than most people predicted. Wages are up for middle-class working Americans in this great state. 
We see the lowest unemployment rate since December of 1969. And if you look at the studies of, of uh, when they've recorded unemployment rate by, by a section of the U.S. economy, African-American unemployment rates, Hispanic unemployment rates, uh, unemployment rates for people with disabilities, unemployment rates for military veterans, each of those groups now see the lowest unemployment rate in that specific category that's ever been recorded in the United States. The economy is humming. When we come back, I want to talk for a minute more about a couple other things that are on the horizon, kind of a grab bag of things before we wrap up. This is Scott Walker on You Can't Recall Courage. Thanks for joining us. Hey, Scott Walker here back on You Can't Recall Courage, our weekly podcast. Uh, this week I was in Nashville, Tennessee, amongst other places, and part of the reason I was there was to speak with folks at the National Conference of State Legislatures. Uh, that's the uh, bipartisan group. It's Republicans, Democrats. I, I guess there's actually even technically some independents there, but lawmakers from all over the country uh, in the state legislature. So members of the House, the Senate, the state assembly, depending on the state. Kudos to my friend, Wisconsin State Assembly Speaker Robin Voss, who was just sworn in this week as the new head, the new chair of the NCSL, the National Conference of State Legislatures. Part of why the reason I was there was to talk about this very crisis and to remind our state lawmakers that they were empowered by the Constitution to take action. You don't have to wait for the Congress. This is something that can happen, uh, like I said, under Article 5 of the U.S. Constitution uh, to crack down on anything, but particularly in this case on the need for a balanced budget. And it's something I hope our, those of you listening will help us put some pressure on in states all across the U.S., Another thing I was talking about is something I mentioned before, but bears repeating, and that is that Eric Holder, and with the help of Barack Obama, raising millions of dollars, literally over $250 million has been raised in their efforts to try and gerrymander Democrats into permanent control. And of course, they have a willing ally in the media. They, they keep claiming they're about uh, fighting gerrymandering, except for the fact when you look at states like Maryland, which has some of the worst gerrymandered legislative districts, particularly in Congress. There's the third congressional district in Maryland that looks like something you'd see in every textbook example of gerrymandering. There really is no physical connection between parts of the district other than it's connected by bodies of water, uh, but really cramming in different parts of the state into one spot. Uh, you look at the map and using the Democrats' rhetoric, uh, states like Maryland, Massachusetts, and others, should actually have plenty more Republican-held House seats than they currently do if you looked at the breakup of the, uh, the statewide votes out there, but they certainly don't. And that map, 3rd District, 3rd Congressional District in the state of Maryland is a prime example there. Certainly, Eric Holder doesn't come out and speak out in instances like this. He only picks states like Wisconsin or North Carolina. They get involved in places like Pennsylvania and elsewhere, where they, Michigan, Ohio, where they want to go to battleground states and try and put Democrats into permanent control. How do they do that? Well, they want to draw maps that instead of keeping communities of interest intact, and that's part of what historically has been a part of the, the constitutional analysis. Are, are communities of interest intact? Are minority voting rights protected? Is there a, a correlation between one vote and one person so that the, the numbers are as equal as can be amongst the various legislative districts, both at the state and at the congressional level? Those are the normal criteria. What you see with Holder and others is their team tries to pick a state and sue until it's blue. So they, they go until they find a, a willing accomplice, in the, oftentimes in the judiciary, that they helped elect. You know, many of these states, uh, Wisconsin in part, we have both appointments and elections. 
I know a few years ago, they tried to win in the 2018 election and they were successful. They came back and tried to win in the 2019 Supreme Court election. And thankfully, Brian Hagedorn, a remarkable new addition to the Supreme Court this month, uh, Brian Hagedorn and an incredible group of grassroots volunteers with the help of uh, things like the Republican State Legislative Committee and, and others who were involved in their uh, Americans for Prosperity and others along the way. Thankfully, they got out and made the case, but, but their attempt was to win three Supreme Court elections in a row, to win the governor's race, and then when the Republican legislature sent a map to the Democrat governor and it didn't go anywhere after a veto, they'd send it to the liberal uh, Supreme Court that was elected by Holder and Company, and they would put together a map that benefited, surprise, surprise, Democrats. That's what we see all over the country. In fact, if you look over the last few years, a handful of states, places like Texas and North Carolina, Pennsylvania, Virginia, a handful of states have seen changes that in the last few years brought about as many as 25 House seats. Think about that. The difference between Pelosi and Kevin McCarthy being the speaker could be as simple as just the, the actions that Eric Holder and his crew have, have taken in terms of the courts in states where they've had friendly judges, either judges they've elected or judges at the federal level that were appointed by Barack Obama or Bill Clinton in the past. So I talked about that in our fight to, to push back to the National Republican uh, Redistricting Trust is really a way to work in the courts and with data to make sure that we have fair maps out there, that we have uh, maps that are drawn by people who are actually elected, not, not unelected bureaucrats or unelected judges out there, but people who are actually elected by the, the people of that respective state or jurisdiction. We want to make sure that happens going forward. And we know in the end, if we have fair maps, well, we can win because common sense conservative forms work in Wisconsin and all across the country. Speaking of that, a couple of little uh, notes to bring up. It's interesting to me that on Friday, the current governor of Wisconsin, Tony Evers, uh, released information that shows insurance rates are going down by 3.2%. Now, I'll give him a hat tip. He actually gave credit to me for signing it into law last year and for members of the legislature who voted for that. Uh, that was our plan. It was an alternative to taking the Obamacare Medicaid expansion, a way to help drive down premiums by helping share part of the risk. But what we had done with a program that we had in place before Obamacare, but Obamacare kicked it out. So instead, we put in this plan. Uh, our plan, as we predicted, would see a reduction in insurance rates. We'd seen it in a handful of other states, uh, like our neighbors in Minnesota, who saw premiums go up until they enacted the plan we enacted, and then they went down. Uh, we were able to do that. Probably what's the most important thing, not just for people in Wisconsin, but all across the country, our plan allowed us to help drop insurance rates so the, the, the premiums you pay for health insurance coverage, those rates went down, despite what we've seen in the past with Obamacare. And we did it, we did it, get this, without taking the Medicaid expansion under Obamacare. That really wipes out the argument uh, that, that you have to buy into this fraud of an argument that you've got to take the Medicaid expansion under Obamacare in order to control health care costs. That's just not true. So that, uh, that's a good piece of news out there. Two other quick things. Uh, you know, another big story uh, that's been brought up the last few weeks about Google and some of the former employees, my friend, U.S. Senator Ted Cruz, has been drawing attention to that. I tell people, I don't know why they're surprised to hear yet another expose on uh, another element of big tech. Remember a few years ago, the Facebook story that came out uh, that showed former employees talking about how conservative messages were pushed down in terms of 
popping up uh, in these stories on Facebook. And I was one of the people listed, along with Ted Cruz and even Mitt Romney in the 26 or 2012 election. No surprise that there. We've got to push back on big tech. That's a tough issue to deal with. I'd, I'd be interested in your thoughts and reactions on it. On one hand, we've got to push back uh, because we can see the liberal influence and bias affecting that and the impact it unknowingly has to millions of people consuming information uh, out on Google, Facebook, and other similar mediums out there. On the other hand, I, I don't like the government telling private sector entities what to do. And so there's got to be a careful balance out there. Finally, I'll just end with this. I, you know, A few weeks ago, I, I posted on Twitter a story that I'd seen uh, about a family, a sad, tragic, horrible story uh, about a family, two parents that brought home a newborn baby and strangled the baby. I, I pointed out how horrific that story was, but said that to me, the only difference between that story about what these two parents allegedly did to their newborn baby and what Virginia Governor Ralph Northam said back in January was the matter of a couple hours. Because remember, he said the infant would be delivered, the infant would be kept comfortable, the infant would be resuscitated if that's what the mother and the family desire, and then a discussion would ensue between the physicians and the mother. So basically, they're deciding after the baby's been born, while keeping that baby, he or she comfortable, they're deciding whether or not that child should live or whether they should not. And yet the, the most extreme, latest version of abortion. The family, at least allegedly in this story, went home and strangled the baby after the baby had been born at the hospital, not too many hours before that. So the only difference between the two is that one was done at home and one was done in the hospital. To me, that's why this isn't just live birth abortion. It isn't a fantasy. It is what it is, and that is murder. Well, thanks for tuning in today to our podcast, You Can't Recall Courage. Join us again every Friday at 9 o'clock a.m., 9 o'clock every morning Central Time, or whenever you listen in, when you pull up this podcast, you can pull it up. Uh, it's always posted at 9 a.m. Central Time on scottwalker.com and at various other platforms. Please pass it on to others and encourage them to listen as well. Until then, keep fighting for freedom.